Welcome back to Books at Bedtime. I'm your host, Tyler, and today we're going to be reading chapter 15, and maybe 16, of The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. 15. Distractions and Farewells The town was called Hallowfell. We stopped for a handful of days because there was a good Wainwright there, and nearly all of our wagons needed tending or mending of some sort. While we were waiting, Ben got the offer he couldn't refuse. She was a widow, fairly wealthy, fairly young, and, to my inexperienced eyes, fairly attractive. The official story was that she needed someone to tutor her young son. However, anyone who saw the two of them walking together knew the truth behind that story. She had been the brewer's wife, but he had drowned two years ago. She was trying to run the brewery as best as she could, but she didn't really have the know-how to do a good job of it. As you see, I don't think anyone could have built a better snare for Ben if they had tried. Plans were changed, and the troop stayed at Hallowfell for a few extra days. My twelfth birthday was moved up and combined with Ben's going-away party. To truly understand what it was like, you must realize that nothing is so grand as a troop showing off for one another. Good entertainers try to make each performance seem special, but you need to remember that the show they're putting on for you is the same one they've put on for hundreds of other audiences. Even the most dedicated troops have an occasional lackluster performance, especially when they know they can get away with it. Small towns, rural, rural inns, those places didn't know good entertainment from bad. Your fellow performers did. Think then, how do you entertain the people who have seen your act a thousand times? You dust off the old tricks. You try out some new ones. You hope for the best. And of course, the grand failures are as entertaining as the great successes. I remember the evening as a wonderful blur of warm emotion, tinged in bitter. Fiddles, lutes, and drums, everyone played and danced and sang as they wished. I dare say we rivaled any fairy revel you can bring to mind. <laughs> and that's saying something with Bast sitting right next to him. <clears throat> I got presents. Tripp gave me a belt knife with a leather grip, claiming that all boys should have something they can hurt themselves with. Yeah, that's, that's pretty... I agree with that, personally. <clears throat> Shandy gave me a lovely cloak she had made, scattered with little pockets for a boy's treasures. My parents gave me a lute, a beautiful thing of smooth, dark wood. I had to play a song, of course, and Ben sang with me. I slipped a little on the strings of the unfamiliar instrument, and Ben wandered off looking for notes once or twice, but it was nice. Ben opened up a small keg of mead, he had been saving for just such an occasion. I remember it tasting the way I felt, sweet and bitter and sullen. Several people had collaborated to write The Ballad of Ben, Brewer Supreme. My father recited it as gravely as if it were the Modegan royal lineage, while accompanying himself on a half-harp. Everyone laughed until they hurt, and Ben twice as much as everyone else. 
at some point in the night, my mother swept me up and danced around in a great spinning circle. Her laughter sang out like music trailing in the wind. Her hair and skirt spun around me as she twirled. She smelled comforting, the way only mothers do. That smell and the quick laughing kiss she gave me did more to ease the dull ache of Ben's leaving than all the entertainments combined. Shandy offered to do a special dance for Ben, but only if he came into her tent to see it. I'd never seen Ben blush before, but he did it well. He hesitated, and when he refused, it was obviously about as easy for him as tearing out his own soul. <laughs> Shandy protested and pouted prettily, saying she'd been practicing it for a long time. Finally, she dragged him into the tent, their disappearance encouraged by a cheer from the entire troop. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> anyway, I think we all know where that's going. Given a little bit of a <sighs> trip tease, I'm sure. <clears throat> anyway, um, Trip and Taryn staged a mock sword fight that was one part breathtaking swordplay, one part dramatic soliloquy provided by Taryn, and one part buffoonery that I'm sure Trip must have invented on the spot. It ranged all over the camp. In the course of the fight, Trip managed to break his sword, hide under a lady's dress, fence with a sausage and performed such fantastical acrobatics that it's a miracle he didn't seriously injure himself, although he did split his pants up the back. Dax set himself alight while attempting a spectacular bit of fire-breathing, and had to be doused. All he suffered was a bit of a singed beard and a slightly bruised pride. He recovered quickly under Ben's tender ministrations, a mug of mead, and a reminder that not everyone was cut out to have eyebrows. <laughs> oh, that's right. Ben does frequently lose his. <clears throat> My parents sang The Lay of Sir Savian Tralliard. Like most of the great songs, Sir Savian was written by Ilian and generally considered to be his crowning work. It's a beautiful song made more so by the fact that I'd only heard my father perform the whole thing a handful of times. It's hellishly complex, and my father was probably the only one in the troupe who could do it justice. Though he didn't particularly show it, I knew it was taxing even for him. My mother sang the counter-harmony, her voice soft and lilting. Even the fire seemed subdued when they took a breath. I felt my heart lift and dive. I wept as much for the glory of the two voices so perfectly enmeshed as for the tragedy of the song. Yes, I cried at the end of it. I did then, and I have every time since. Even a reading of the story aloud will bring tears to my eyes. In my opinion, anyone who isn't moved by it is less than human inside. There was a momentary quiet after they finished, wherein everyone wiped their eyes and blew their noses. Then, after a suitable period of recovery had elapsed, someone called out, Lanray! Lanray! The shout was taken up by several other people. Yes, Lanray! My father gave a wry smile and shook his head. He never performed any part of a song until it was finished. Come on, Arl, Shandy called out. You've been stewing it for long enough. Let some out of the pot. He shook his head again, still smiling. It's not ready yet. He bent down and carefully set his lute into its case. Let's have a taste, Arladin. It was Taryn this time. Yeah, for Ben's sake. 
It's not fair that he should have to hear you mumble over it all this while and not get... I'm wondering what you're doing in that wagon with your wife if it's not... Sing it! Lanray! Tripp quickly organized the whole troop into a great chanting, howling mass that my father managed to withstand for almost a minute before he stopped. <clears throat> Sorry, before he stooped and lifted his loot back out of the case. Everyone cheered. The crowd hushed as soon as he sat back down. He tuned a string or two. Even though he'd only just set it down, he flexed his fingers and struck a few soft experimental notes, then swept into the song so gently that I caught myself listening to it before I knew it had begun. Then my father's voice spoke over the rise and fall of the music. Sit and listen, all, for I will sing a story wrought and forgotten in a time old and gone, a story of a man, proud Lanre, strong as the spring, steel of the sword he had ready at hand. Here how he fought, fell, and rose again, to fall again, under shadow falling then. Love felt him, love for native land, and love for of his wife Lyra, at whose calling some say he rose through doors of death to speak her name as his first reborn breath. My father drew a breath and paused, his mouth open as if he would continue. Then a wide, wicked grin spread across his face, and he bent to tuck his lute safely away. There was an outcry and a great deal of complaining, but everyone knew that they had been lucky to hear as much as they had. Someone else struck up a song for dancing, and the protests faded away. My parents danced together, her head on his chest. Both had their eyes closed. They seemed so perfectly content. If you can find someone like that, someone who you can hold and close your eyes to the world with, then you're lucky, even if it only lasts for a minute or a day. The image of them gently swaying to the music is how I picture love in my mind, even after all these years. Afterward, Ben danced with my mother, his steps sure and stately. I was struck by how beautiful they looked together, Ben, old, gray, and portly, with his lined face and half-burned eyebrows, my mother, slender, fresh, and bright, pale and smooth-skinned in the firelight. They complimented each other by contrast. I ached, knowing I might never see them together again. By this time, the sky was beginning to brighten in the east. Everyone gathered to say their final goodbyes. I can't remember what I said to him before we left. I know it felt woefully inadequate, but I knew he understood. He made me promise not to get myself into any trouble tinkering with the things he had taught me. He stooped a bit and gave me a hug and then tussled my hair. I didn't even mind. In semi-retaliation, I tried to smooth out his eyebrows, something I'd always wanted to try. His expression was marvelous in its surprise. He gathered me into an... He gathered me into another hug. Then he stepped away. My parents promised to steer the troop back toward the town when we were in the area. All the troopers said they wouldn't need much steering, but... Even as young as I was, I knew the truth. It would be a great long time before I saw him again. Years. I don't remember starting out that morning, but I do remember trying to sleep and feeling quite alone except for a dull, bittersweet ache. When I awoke later in the afternoon, I found a package resting next to me. Wrapped in sackcloth and tied with twine, there was a bright piece of paper with my name fixed to the top. 
waving in the wind like a little flag. Unwrapping it, I recognized the book's binding. It was Rhetoric and Logic, the book Ben had used to teach me argument. Out of his small library of a dozen books, it was the only one I hadn't read from cover to cover. I hated it. <laughs> oh, yeah, perfect gift then. No, but uh, probably helpful. I cracked it open and saw writing on the inside cover. It said, Kvoth, defend yourself well at the university. Make me proud. Remember your father's song. Be wary of folly. Your friend, Apathy. Ben and I had never discussed my attending the university. Of course, I had dreams of going there someday, but they were dreams I hesitated to share with my parents. Attending the university would mean leaving my parents, my troop, everyone and everything I had ever known. Quite frankly, the thought was terrifying. What would it be like to settle in one place, not just for an evening or a span of days, but for months, years? No more performing? No tumbling with trip or playing the bratty young noble's son in Three Pennies for Wishing? No more wagons? No one to sing with? I'd never said it al anything aloud, but Ben would have guessed. I read his inscription again, cried a bit, and promised him that I would do my best. That's the end of chapter 15. I have to be a little bit shorter today. Oh, man. Okay, yeah. We're doing this one. And this is, this is the chapter we're going to end on today. Um. Buckle up. Chapter 16. Hope. Over the next months, my parents did their best to patch the hole left by Ben's absence, bringing in the other troopers to fill my time productively and keep me from moping. You see, in the trooper, sorry, in the troop age, <clears throat> let me start that sentence ago. In the troop, age had little to do with anything. If you were strong enough to saddle horses, you saddled the horses. If your hands were quick enough, you juggled. If you were clean-shaven and fit the dress, you played Lady Raithiel in the Swineheart and the Nightingale. Things were generally as simple as that. So Trip taught me how to jape and to tumble. Shandy walked me through the courtly dances of half a half-dozen countries. Taran measured me against the hilt of his sword and judged that I had grown tall enough to begin the basics of swordplay. Not enough to actually fight, he stressed, but enough so I could make a good show of it on stage. The roads were good this time of year, so we made excellent time traveling north through the Commonwealth, fifteen, twenty miles a day as we searched out new towns to play. With Ben gone, I rode with my father more often, and he began my formal training for the stage. I already knew a great deal, of course, but what I had picked up was an undisciplined hodgepodge. My father systematically went about showing me the true mechanics of the actor's trade, how slight changes in accent or posture made a man seem oafish or sly or silly. 
Lastly, my mother began teaching me how to comport myself in polite society. I knew a little from our infrequent stays with Baron Greyfellow, and thought I was quite genteel enough without having to memorize forms of address, table manners, and the elaborate snarled rankings of the peerage. Eventually, I told my mother exactly that. Who cares if a Modegan Viscount outranks a vintage Sparathane? I protested. And who cares if one is your grace and the other is my lord? They care, my mother said firmly. If you perform for them, you need to conduct yourself with dignity and learn to keep your elbow out of the soup. Father doesn't worry about which fork to use and who outranks who. My mother frowned, her eyes narrowing. Who outranks whom? I said grudgingly. Your father knows more than he lets on, my mother said, and what he doesn't know he breezes past due to his considerable charm. That's how he gets by. She took my chin, turned my face toward her. Her eyes were green, with a ring of gold around the pupil. Do you just want to get by, or do you want to make me proud? There was only one answer to that. Once I knuckled down to learn it, it was just another type of acting, another, another script. <clears throat> my mother made rhymes to help me remember the more nonsensical elements of etiquette, and together we wrote a dirty little song called The Pontifex Always Ranks Under a Queen. We laughed over it for a solid month, and she strictly forbade me to sing it to my father, lest he play it in front of the wrong people someday and get us all into serious trouble. Tree! The, the shout came faintly down the line. 308 Oak. My father stopped in the middle of the monologue we had been reciting for me. He had been reciting for me, and gave an irritated sigh. That'll be as far as we get today, then, he grumbled, looking up at the sky. Are we stopping? My mother called from inside the wagon. Another tree across the road, I explained. I swear. My, my father said, steering the wagon to a clear space at the side of the road. Is this the king's road, or isn't it? You'd think we were the only people on it. How long ago was the storm? Two span? Not quite, I said. Sixteen days. Hmm, let's see. How long must two span be then? Twenty days? Sixteen days is not quite two span. So span has to be at least nine or ten days, because otherwise a span would be eight, and that would... Yeah, no, so I, I guess a span is, is um, ten days? That's what I'm going to guess. A span, maybe spanning all your fingers to count on? I don't know. Not quite, I said. Sixteen days. And trees still blocking the road. I've a mind to send the consulate a bill for every tree we've had to cut and drag out of the way. This will put us another three hours behind schedule. He hopped from the wagon as it rolled to a halt. I think it's nice, my mother said, walking around from the back of the wagon. Gives us the chance for something hot. She gave my father a significant look. To eat. <laughs> yes, yes, something hot to eat. I'm sure that they mean food. <clears throat> and not each other's genitals. Okay, anyway. Um, they definitely mean each other's genitals. Anyway, uh, it gets frustrating making do with whatever you can grab at the end of the day. A body wants more. <laughs> oh yes, I suppose it does. My father's mood seemed to temper considerably. Where is that? He said. 
Sweet, my mother called to me. Do you think you could find me some wild sage? I don't know if it grows around here, I said with the proper amount of uncertainty in my voice. No harm in looking, she said sensibly. She looked at my father from the corner of her eye. If you can find enough, bring back an armload. We'll dry it for later. Typically, whether or not I found what I was looking for didn't matter very much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, far be it from a, what is he, 12? Far be it from a 12-year-old to um, stick around while his parents are um, cavorting. <clears throat> Anyway, let's see. Uh, it was my habit to wander away from the troop in the evenings. I usually had some sort of errand to run while my parents set up for dinner. But it was just an excuse for us to get away from each other. Privacy is hard to come by on the road, and they needed it as much as I did. So if it took me an hour to gather an armload of firewood, they didn't mind. And if they hadn't started dinner by the time I came back, well, that was only fair, wasn't it? I hope they spent those last few hours well. I hope... They didn't waste them on mindless tasks, kindling the fi evening fire and cutting vegetables for dinner. I hope they sang together, as they so often did. I hope they retired to our wagon and spent time in each other's arms. I hope they lay near each other afterward and spoke softly of small things. I hope they were together, busy with loving each other until the end came. It is a small hope, and pointless really. They are just as dead either way. Still, I hope. Let us pass over the time I spent alone in the woods that evening, playing games that children invent to amuse themselves. The last carefree hours of my life, the last moments of my childhood. Let us pass over my return to the camp, just as the sun was beginning to set. The sight of bodies strewn about like broken dolls, the smell of blood and burning hair. How I wandered aimlessly about, too disoriented for proper panic, numb with shock and dread. I would pass over the whole of that evening, in fact. I would spare you the burden of any of it, if one piece were not necessary to the story. It is vital. It is the hinge upon which the story pivots like an opening door. In some ways, this is where the story begins. So let's have done with it. Scattered patches of smoke hung in the still evening air. It was quiet, as if everyone in the troop was listening for something, as if they were all holding their breath. An idle wind tussled the leaves in the trees and wafted a patch of smoke like a low cloud toward me. I stepped out of the forest and through the smoke, heading into the, into the camp. I left the cloud of smoke and rubbed some of the sting from my eyes, as I looked around, I saw Tripp's tent lying half-collapsed and smoldering in his fire. The treated canvas burned fitfully, and the acrid gray smoke hung close to the ground in the quiet evening air. I saw Terran's body lying by his wagon, his sword broken in his hand. The green and gray he normally wore was, was wet and red with blood. Sorry, I tried to two words together. It was wet and red with blood. One of his legs had was twisted unnaturally, and the splintered bone showing through the skin was very, very white. I stood, unable to look away from Terran, the gray shirt, the red blood, the white bone. I stared 
as if it were a diagram in a book I was trying to understand. My body grew numb. I felt as if I was trying to think through syrup. Some small rational part of me realized I was in deep shock. It repeated the fact to me again and again. I used all Ben's training to ignore it. I did not want to think about what I saw. I did not want to know what had happened here. I did not want to know what any of this meant. After I don't know how long, a wisp of smoke broke my line of vision. I sat down next to the nearest fire in a daze. It was Shandy's fire, and a small pot hung simmering, boiling potatoes. Strangely familiar among the chaos. I focused on the kettle, something normal. I used a stick to poke at the contents and saw they were finished cooking. Normal. I lifted the kettle from the fire and set it on the ground next to Shandy's body. Her clothes hung in tatters about her. I tried to brush her hair away from her face and found that... Sorry. Away from her face and my hand came back sticky with blood. The firelight reflected in her flat, empty eyes. I stood and looked about aimlessly. Tripp's tent was entirely aflame by now, and Shandy's wagon was standing with one wheel in Marion's campfire. All the flames were tinged with blue, making the scene dreamlike and surreal. I heard voices. Peering around the corner of Shandy's wagon, I saw several unfamiliar men and women sitting around a fire. My parents' fire. A dizziness swept over me, and I reached out a hand to steady myself against the wagon's wheel. When I gripped it, the iron bands that reinforced the wheel crumbled in my hand, flaking away in gritty sheets of brown rust. When I pulled my hand away, the wagon wheel creaked and began to crack. I stepped back as it gave way, the wagon splintering as if its wood were rotten as an old stump. I now stood in full view of the fire. One of the men tumbled backward and came to his feet with his sword out. His motion reminded me of quicksilver rolling from a jar onto a tabletop, effortless and supple. His expression was intent, but his body was relaxed as if he had just stood and stretched. His sword was pale and elegant. When it moved, it cut the air with a brittle sound. It reminded me of the quiet that settles on the coldest days in winter, when it hurts to breathe and everything is still. He was two dozen feet from me, but... I could see him perfectly in the fading light of sunset. I remember him as clearly as I remember my own mother, sometimes better. His face was narrow and sharp, with the perfect beauty of porcelain. His hair was shoulder-length, framing his face in loose curls the color of frost. He was a creature of winter's pale. Everything about him was cold and sharp and white, except his eyes. They were black like a goat's, but with no iris. His eyes were like his sword, and neither one reflected the light of the fire or the setting sun. He relaxed when he saw me. He dropped the tip of his sword and smiled with perfect ivory teeth. It was the expression a nightmare wore. I felt a stab of feeling penetrate the confusion. I clutched around me like a thick protective blanket. Something put both its hands deep into my chest and clutched. It may have been the first time in my life I was ever truly afraid. Back by the fire, a bald man with a gray beard chuckled. 
Looks like we missed a little rabbit. Careful, Cinder, his teeth may be sharp. The one called Cinder sheathed his sword with the sound of a tree cracking under the weight of winter ice. Keeping his distance, he knelt. Again, I was reminded of the way Mercury moved. Now on eye level with me, his expression grew concerned behind his matte black eyes. What's your name, boy? I stood there, mute, frozen as a startled fawn. Cinder sighed and dropped his gaze to the ground for a moment. When he looked, when he looked back up at me, I saw Pity staring at me with hollow eyes. Young man, he said, wherever are your parents? He held my gaze for a moment, and then looked over his shoulder back toward the fire where the others sat. Does anyone know where his parents are? Some of them smiled hard and brittle, as if enjoying a particularly good joke. One or two of them laughed aloud. Cinder turned back to me, and the pity fell away like a cracked mask, leaving only the nightmare smile upon his face. Is this your parents' fire? he asked with a terrible delight in his voice. I nodded numbly. His smile slowly faded, expressionless. He looked deep into me. His voice was quiet, cold, and sharp. Someone's parents, he said, have been singingly have been someone's parents, he said, have been singing entirely the wrong sort of songs. Cinder, a cool voice came from the direction of the fire. His black eyes narrowed in irritation. What? he hissed. You are approaching my displeasure. This one has done nothing. Send him to the soft and painless blanket of his sleep. The cool voice caught slightly on the last word, as if it were difficult to say. The voice came from a man who sat apart from the rest, wrapped in shadow at the edge of the fire. Though the sky was still bright with sunset, and nothing stood between the fire and where he sat, shadow pooled around him like thick oil. The fire snapped and danced, lively and warm, tinged with blue, but no flicker of its light came close to him. The shadow gathered thicker around his head. I could catch a glimpse of a deep cowl, like some priests wear, but underneath the shadows were so deep it was like looking down a well at midnight. Cinder glanced briefly at the sh shadowed man, then turned away. You are as good as a watcher, Aliax, he snapped. And you seem to forget our purpose, the dark man said, his cool vo voice sharpening. Or does your purpose simply differ from my own? The last words were spoken carefully, as if they held special significance. Cinder's arrogance left him in a second, like water poured from a bucket. No, he said, turning back toward the fire. No, certainly not. That is good. I hate to think of our long acquaintance coming to an end. As do I. Refresh me again as to our relationship, Cinder, the shadowed man said, a deep sliver of anger running through his patient tone. I... I am in your service... Cinder made a placating gesture. You are a tool in my hand, the shadowed man interrupted gently. Nothing more. 
A hint of defiance touched Cinder's expression. He paused. I w The soft voice went hard as a rod of ramston steel. Ferula! Cinder's quicksilver grace disappeared. He staggered, his body suddenly rigid with pain. You are a tool in my hand, the cool voice repeated. Say it. Cinder's jaw clenched angrily for a moment, then he convulsed and cried out, sounding more like a wounded animal than a man. I am a tool in your hand, he gasped. Lord Haliax. I am a tool in your hand, Lord Haliax. Cinder amended as he crumpled, trembling to his knees. Who knows the inner turnings of your name, Cinder? The words were spoken with a slow patience, like a schoolmaster reciting a forgotten lesson. Cinder wrapped shaking arms around his midsection and hunched over, closing his eyes. You, Lord Haliax. Who keeps you safe from the Amir, the singers, the seeth? From all that would harm you in this world? Haliax asked with calm, calm politeness as if genuinely curious as to what the answer might be. You, Lord Haliax, Cinder's voice was a quiet shred of pain. And whose purpose do you serve? Your purpose, Lord Haliax, the words were choked out. Yours, none other. The tension left the air. Then Cinder's body suddenly went slack. He fell forward onto his hands, and beads of sweat fell from his face to patter on the ground like rain. His white hair hung limp around his face. Thank you, Lord, he gasped out earnestly. I will not forget again. You will. You are too fond of your little cruelties, all of you. Haliax's hooded face swept back and forth to look at each of the figures sitting around the fire. They stirred uncomfortably. I am glad I decided to accompany you today. You are straying, indulging in whimsy. Some of you have forgotten what it is we seek, what we wish to achieve. The hood turned back to Cinder. But you have my forgiveness. Perhaps, if not for these remindings, it would be I who would forget. There was an edge to the last of his words. Now finish what... His cool voice trailed away as his shadowed hood slowly tilted to look toward the sky. There was an expectant silence. Those sitting around the fire grew perfectly still, their expressions intent. In unison they tilted their heads as if looking at the same point in the twilight sky, as if trying to catch the scent of something on the wind. A feeling of being watched pulled at my attention. I felt a tenseness, a subtle change in the texture of the air. I focused on it, glad for the distraction, glad for anything that might keep me from thinking clearly for just a few more seconds. They come. Haliax said quietly. He stood, and shadow seemed to boil outward from him like a dark fog. Quickly, to me! The others rose from their seats around the fire. Cinder scrambled to his feet and staggered a half-dozen steps toward the fire. Haliax spread his arms, and the shadow surrounding him bloomed like a flower unfolding. Then each of the others turned with a studied ease and took a step toward Haliax into the shadow surrounding him. But as their feet came down, they slowed, and gently, as if they were made of sand with wind blowing across them, they faded away. 
Only Cinder looked, looked back, a hint of anger in his nightmare eyes. Then they were gone. I will not burden you with what followed, how I ran from body to body, frantically feeling for the signs of life, as Ben had taught me, my futile attempt at digging a grave, how I scrabbled in the dirt until my fingers were bloody and raw, how I found my parents. It was in the darkest hours of the night when I found our wagon. Our horse had dragged it nearly a hundred yards down the road before he died. It seemed so normal inside, so tidy and calm. I was struck by how much the back of the wagon smelled like the two of them. I lit every lamp and candle in the wagon. The light was no comfort, but it was the honest gold of real fire, untinged with blue. I took down my father's loot case. I lay in my parents' bed with the loot beside me. My mother's pillow smelled of her hair, of an embrace. I did not mean to sleep, but sleep took me. I woke, coughing with everything in flames around me. It had been the candles, of course. Still numb with shock, I gathered a few things into the bag. I was slow and aimless, unafraid as I pulled Ben's book from under my burning mattress. What horror could a simple fire hold for me now? I put my father's loot into its case. It felt like I was stealing, but I couldn't think of anything else that would remind me of them. Both their hands had brushed its wood a thousand, thousand times. Then I left. I walked into the forest and kept going until dawn began to brighten the eastern edges of the sky. As the birds began to sing, I stopped and set down my bag. I brought out my father's lute and clutched it to my body. Then I began to play. My fingers hurt, but I played anyway. I played until my fingers bled on the strings. I played until the sun shone through the trees. I played until my arms ached. I played, trying not to remember, until I fell asleep. And that's where we'll stop for today. Tragedy. A heinous act. Unexplained. And that is the beginning of the story of both of them.